Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, my friends. Shalom, shalom. Can you hear me? It is so good to see all of you. It is so good to see you, to be with you. Uh, I'm just, as the music is playing, I'm going through the, sc- the screens. And those of you who have been so kind to uh, to share your your uh, camera so I can see your faces, it just, it calms me down. You know, I pour my heart into this thing. And then to see your loving faces, it just really brings me peace. And I love to see all of you. So, um so, so much has happened this last week. For me personally, for Israel, for the world, not just this past week, but these are the times we're in. I think I feel like I start that way every week. I don't know if you feel it as well, but to me, it seems that we're in a world of confusion. One second, someone turned off my camera. You can see me again. I don't know who shut my camera off. Anyways, it feels like we're in a world. Can you hear me? Cal, Ardell? Okay, so it seems like we're in this world of confusion, and while it feels like things are falling apart and there's a lot of darkness, there's also a lot of light, a lot of beauty, a lot of, uh, of hope. I don't know why it keeps shutting off. Anyways, I want to open up with a prayer, and one of the prayers is that my video camera stops shutting off arbitrarily. That would be a good prayer to start with. Um, So here we go. Hashem, thank you so much. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for letting us find each other. Thank you for letting us strengthen each other during these powerful times in world history. There's so much darkness, but there's also so much light. Please, Hashem, draw us to that light. And... uh, and, and, and help us connect with each other. Use our fellowship and each of us personally to channel that light to the world. Please, Hashem, allow the feeling of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds, allow the words of our mouths to be a fragrant incense before you. Please allow us to find favor in your eyes, both during our time together here on this fellowship and for every moment for the rest of our lives. Amen. Okay, so I have so much that I want to share with you, but even before I start, there's an idea that a student is not supposed to speak before his Rebbe. So let me start by introducing my dear friend and brother, Rabbi Jeremy Gimpel, to share. Hey, fellowship. So I'm just in a park here in Jerusalem today. Um, Tehillah's mother had to go through a surgery, so we're just in Jerusalem now waiting for the results. And so, of course, your prayers would be very much appreciated. But uh, I was looking through the Parsha this week, and you know, one of the methodologies that the sages of Israel teach us is that you should look at the beginning of the Torah portion and at the end of the Torah portion. And somehow those two things are interconnected. And we look at the beginning of the Torah portion, and we have this spiritual hero, this zealous man, Penchas, who just, at a moment's notice, almost instinctually, is just enraged, inspired, zealous for God and takes action into his own hands. Moses doesn't do anything. Joshua doesn't do anything. No one does anything. And he murders, kills uh, Zimri, one of the heads of the tribes of Simeon. 
And this week's portion, we see that he's awarded the covenant of peace and the priesthood for this incredible act. And well, there's a lot of questions about that. I mean, on one hand, without going into the morality of it, um, it seems as though the spiritual um, hero is the person that's spontaneous, is the person that's filled with the Spirit of God, that's ready to take faith and put it into action, that's just, you know, elevated by the moment. And it's almost like that's, that's how we idealize spiritual living. But then at the end of the Torah portion, we see something really remarkable. Um, Pinchas doesn't lead the nation. Joshua does. And it's like this amazing climactic moment where Moses is told, you're going to die. And Moses is like, listen, we need a leader. Don't leave the Jewish people alone. And they choose a leader. And then you're wondering, like, okay, what's the message that's going to be given forth now to the people of Israel for all times? What is the message of this new leader? What's the message to this new leader? What's going to be carried on for generation to generation? And then the verse says, And the first lamb you shall do in the morning, and the second lamb you shall do at night. And the sages of Israel, there's an argument, what's the most important verse in all of the Torah? And one of the opinions is that verse is the most important verse, not the Shema, not love your neighbor as yourself, but one lamb you do in the morning and one lamb you shall do in the evening. That's the most important verse. And I think if you contrast that with the spiritual spontaneity and zealousness of Pinchas and the fact that Pinchas doesn't get the leadership, but Joshua does. And the first message to Joshua is consistency, persistence, stability, loyalty every day in the morning, every day in the evening. Joshua the Midrash tells us, um, you know, what did they do throughout their times in the desert? So Moses would be giving over his Torah classes and the heads of the tribes and the, the people that wanted to be judges and scholars and leaders would attend the class. And Joshua was there before everyone else, setting up the chairs. And he would leave after everyone else, cleaning up every day. He was the first one in class and the last one to leave. And then when it's time to elect a leader, it's not the spontaneous, zealous, inspirational moment, but it's the consistent leader that has faith and loyalty. Emunah in Hebrew is rooted in another word, which is ne'eman, which means loyal. That somehow biblical faith is less about professing a certain idea to be true, but more about being loyal to what you know is true. And that combination of Pinchas, which is the spontaneous moment being filled with God's Spirit and taking that uh, inspiration and turning it into action, you know, Pinchas is the one that's commanded every morning, every evening. One lamb in the morning and one lamb in the evening. And it's that discipline and that perseverance and that consistency that actually creates the groundwork. I mean, Western civilization has almost forgotten. It's like we idealize so much the moment of inspiration and the great music concert and the moments where we feel connected. But 
the Torah is really pointing us that if you want those moments of connectivity and you want those moments of inspiration, and when you're put to the test, you want to make sure that in those moments of truth, you act properly, the way to doing that is one lamb in the morning and one lamb in the evening. Discipline, habits, persistence, ritual, and building a life based on discipline and habits will create the groundwork for the next generation that's going into Israel when the time comes for them to go out to war, when the time comes for them to act in faith. The loyalty that they've committed to, their faith in loyalty, their emunah with ne'emanut, that together is what creates the groundwork um, for an amazing generation. And that's why Joshua was chosen to lead the nation as an example, because the nation didn't need you know, a zealous, inspirational leader. What they needed was a, a personal example of when the time came, Joshua came in with a good report, because every day he'd been practicing. Every day he was persistent. Every day he had discipline. Every day he did what was right. And training yourself to do what's right over and over again, aligning yourself over and over again, doing tshuva over and over again, just like a repetition builds your physical muscles when you lift up a weight, so to spiritual repetitions of that consistency build up your character. They build up a loyalty, a ne'emanut, to your faith, and it strengthens you spiritually. And so I just bless everyone that we all have faith and loyalty because times are not always easy. Tehillah is right now in the hospital visiting her mom and you know we just don't know what the future holds. But hopefully in practicing with faith, consistency and persistence will give us the, the wood for the fire to allow our fire to burn bright when it gets darkest. And so I bless all of us with the covenant of peace of Pinchas and the leadership of Joshua. So thank you very much for your prayers. They're very much appreciated. And I'll see you soon. I'm coming to the United States, and so is Tehillah. And I would love to see as many of you as possible. But we'll be in touch. But uh, it was just so good to hear this from Jeremy because uh, he lives it. He's really living that. And more than ever, I can really think about me needing to hear that as well. It's such a beautiful teaching. It's such an important teaching for right now, particularly during our times. Because while we are surrounded by so many things that appear to be falling apart and going out of control, the truth is that the vast majority of things that we focus on and, and stress about are really out of our sphere of influence altogether. Just this past week, I sat down for a conversation with a friend of mine who, uh, who was sharing his perspective on what's happening in the world today. And he was sharing one thing after another, really just like conspiracies uh, from Corona to the vaccines, to 5G, to the World Economic Forum. And I'll tell you, he was totally convinced of each and every conspiracy that he shared. Uh, and, and as for me, I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. I walked away feeling like there may be real some things of truth to what he was saying or none, I, I didn't know. But what I did see was that he had been twisting himself up in knots over things that seemed to be out of his control, where we should be harnessing our efforts and our focus and our energy into what is in our control. And as Jeremy explained, that's what Pinchas did to make himself into that person that he needed to be in order to make that courageous decision at that fateful moment. 
there's discipline and consistency. And I'll tell you, as of late this week, as I'll tell you a little bit later in this fellowship, I'm, I'm developing more of that than I ever have, not out of uh, inspiration, but in some ways out of necessity. I feel like God is taking me in that direction. I'm really opening my heart up on this fellowship. And uh, anyways, Jeremy's an inspiration to me. I'll just put it out there right now. He doesn't just preach it. He lives it. Every day he jumps in that freezer that literally he has to break the ice. I've seen it. It's an ice cream freezer. freezer. He jumps into it without fail every single day. If I'm a big hero, like I'll just turn the shower on cold for 10 seconds at the end. But either way, on a personal level, this uh, empowering Torah idea that Jeremy shared is something I needed to hear right now because the past week has been a very difficult one for me. And I'll admit that I was deliberating about whether to share it with all of you. It's difficult to do because, number one, I feel like uh, I've been talking a lot about me lately about myself. But second, it feels uh, more than a little vulnerable because it's real time. It's still happening to me right now. I haven't fully worked it through yet, although I do feel like I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. You see, often uh, rabbis and pastors and motivational speakers, public figures, you got to put your best face on, you know, like, like you've got it all figured out. We, we go through these hard times, and you can share about it, but usually it's after the fact. At least that's what I've seen. When you're on the other side of things, when you've already got it figured out, but sharing about it while it's happening, well, it makes you feel vulnerable. So often you just put a smile on your face, and you keep your private life private. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. I think there's a fear that people have that those they're speaking to will say to themselves, this guy doesn't have it figured out. He's going through hard times just like I am, so why should I listen to him? And, uh, and that's why so many of these public figures, I think, crash and burn so dramatically. Because the facade that they need to keep up, that best face that they need to keep up, eventually comes apart. And uh, you can only keep the front up for so long. So I decided to share this because I really believe that one of the secrets to the beauty of this fellowship is being real with each other, open with each other, walking through the minefield of this world together, hand in hand. And I also feel like I intuitively recognize the truth that we're all people and we all fall and we all fail and we all have shortcomings and we don't always live up to our own standards of what we know is true. We aren't always able to overcome our emotions, to control our emotions. Uh, it's true. We talk about it all the time. The greatest service of Hashem is what? Is, is happiness. Serving God with happiness. One second. Okay, I'm glad, I, I'm glad that I caught it. Anyways, maybe some people can be happy all the time, but not me, nor anyone I know for that matter. Uh, sometimes, despite it all, we're sad. And no matter how deeply we know that everything is from Hashem and everything is good, we can find ourselves filled with doubt and fear and regret and sadness. And so this week has been yet another challenging week for me, perhaps the most challenging so far. So there was, let's go back, right? We're on this journey together. There was the car incident in which I performed the very impressive accomplishment of being run over by my very own car while I was driving it dislocated my shoulder severely, 
And now for the rest of my life, I'll spend the first 15 seconds compulsively assuring that the car is in park before I exit the vehicle. So that happened. Uh, then I got this crazy sickness. I remember Jeremy said last week after I spoke, wow, I couldn't even tell you were sick. I immediately passed out afterwards for many hours. Everything I said, it just took everything out of me. Um, and that was a crazy sickness. I had headache and chills and fatigue. It was bad. And it's still with, with me. Uh, and this past week, this was a doozy. This week, I was struck with anxiety, like extreme anxiety. I, I think the truth is I don't really know because I've never struggled with anxiety. It's weird to be 41 and all of a sudden have a new thing. But, uh, but I don't know what else I could call it. You, you see, I've always been grateful. Hashem has blessed me with a relatively stable and happy disposition. I've had moments of anxiety here and there, but that's it. It was mild and it was infrequent. And in my mind, my job was to be a source of strength and stability, to be that rock that my friends and family who struggled with anxiety, that they could lean on for strength and encouragement. That, that was always my role. I was that guy. And I was grateful that part of my basket of challenges Hashem determined to, uh, that I would need to contend with in this world was not including anxiety. But I will admit, though, that somewhere deep in my heart, I took some credit for it. I said to myself that I didn't have these huge struggles with dark emotions because I've spent so much of my adult life polishing the lens. And by now, you know what I mean by polishing the lens, working on crafting that prism through which you experience the world to reflect the truth of Hashem's providence and his orchestration of everything. And then this week happened in which I became crippled with anxiety. I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep. A friend of mine told me that uh, he had the same, all of the same symptoms that I had and that it was a side effect of this virus or whatever it is that I was infected with and that many people knew that were experiencing mental or emotional side effects, but that didn't speak to me. I, I, I doubted that that was true. It just didn't feel true. It felt like there was an uncontrolled hurricane-like swirl of doubt and confusion and, and most of all fear. It was something like, unlike I've experienced in my adult life. And these weren't foreign thoughts that were shooting through my mind. Most of them were thoughts that I've had before that I entertain, but their torrential-like power and potency was unlike anything I can ever remember. It felt like Hashem had stripped me of my emunah, of my faith, and I was left alone in the center of a tornado, not knowing what to do or where to turn. I'm looking at your faces. I hope it's okay that I'm going this deep and just opening up like this. So I had a thought that the sickness of the week before had humbled me. I thought I was humbled already, but I guess I needed to be humbled even more than that. Because, you know, even when it comes to, to faith, uh, particularly when it comes to faith, I was desperately grabbing in the dark for these, for life rafts, for my emergency truths. I don't know if you have the emergency truth that you go to, but I remember lying there in bed. Ain od milvado. I was singing it to myself. Ain od milvado. Ain od milvado. There's nothing but Hashem in the world. That's what ain't on me do. There's nothing but Hashem. And then I remember that wherever I am, he's with me. Everything's from Hashem. And of course, the one we all knew, Gamzulatova. Gamzulatova, this too is for the good. Everything's for the good. I would say, Gam ki elech beget salmavet lo irara ki 
Although I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear any evil because you're with me. And I'm not going to say that these didn't help at all, even though at the time it didn't feel like they helped at all. But in retrospect, maybe they made the difference between really coming apart at the seams and just suffering, suffering excruciatingly. But, um, but there was nothing I could do to end the suffering. But even while it was happening, I knew deep down that I was being humbled. And at some point, I had the thought that maybe I should turn to a doctor for some medication, for some sort of relief, which, by the way, I'm not judging those people who do that at all. I know people who do. Everybody has their own set of challenges and their own solutions. But that voice of truth deep within me said, no. Said, no, I am, I'm not going to do that. I need to be experiencing this right now. And if I medicate it, I'll miss the opportunity it's presenting to me. And it would have all been for nothing. And I actually remember a teaching from the great Rabbi Abraham Tversky, if you've heard of him. May his memory be a blessing. He just left the world just about six months ago, and he's already so missed. I could summarize it for you, but I feel like it would be more powerful for you to hear it directly. There's from something him. I want to tell you about uh, the stress and how we have to look at stress, okay? And I think it's an important thing because uh, many people have told me from my lectures the one thing they remember, okay? I was sitting in a dentist's office and looked at an article that said, how do lobsters grow? Well, I don't care how lobsters grow. But I was interested in it. And it points out that a lobster is a soft, mushy animal that lives inside of a rigid shell. That rigid shell does not expand. Well, how can the lobster grow? Well, as the lobster grows, that shell becomes very confining. Right? And the, kind of the lobster feels itself under pressure and uncomfortable. It goes under a rock formation to protect itself from predatory fish, casts off the shell, and produces a new one. Well, eventually, that shell becomes very uncomfortable as it grows, right? Back under the rocks. And the lobster repeats this numerous times. The stimulus for the lobster to be able to grow is that it feels uncomfortable. Right? Now, if lobsters had doctors, they would never grow. Because as soon as the lobster feels uncomfortable, goes to the doctor, gets a Valium, gets a Percocet, feels fine. Never gets off its shell. So I think that we have to realize is that we have to realize that times of stress are also times that are signals for growth. And if we use adversity properly, we can grow through adversity. And so uh, I figured if I needed to upgrade my shell, then let it happen. Now, just one request, please. If I lose video or sound, if you guys could just go like this, because I don't always see it on the bottom, but I see all of you. So if you could just wave to me uh, that I've lost video. Okay, you're waving to me now. That's good to know. I'm going to hope that uh, this doesn't happen again. We'll figure it out. But I just prayed that this would all end as quickly as possible, that my shell would be upgraded. And uh, it was just so humbling. I remember feeling like Hashem had just removed himself from me, that he exiled me from his presence. I found myself speaking King David's words from Psalm 51 as if they were my own. As if they were my own. Like I was talking to Hashem and I've just said them so many times that that's the way it came out from me. When he said, Al tashlicheni milfanecha, this is Psalm 51. Al tashlicheni milfanecha, veruach kachcha al tikach mimeni. Do not cast me away from your presence, Hashem. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I felt the bitterness 
the cold, the isolation of being alienated from Hashem within my heart, of not knowing how to reach out and not to connect with Him. And believe me, now that I'm feeling it on the other side, I just, I'm going to cleave like never before. It, that's already made it all worth it. But it, it became clear to me in a way that it had never been that being close to Hashem and having a deep internalized faith in Hashem is ultimately a gift as well. We need to grow the muscle to study Torah, to do acts of kindness and to pray. But ultimately, having that faith enter our hearts and fill our souls is a gift from God, a gift that we need to pray for and a gift that we need to recognize can be taken away from us when he sees fit. And, um, and it isn't necessarily a, a punishment. I've come to question whether there's really, in the world of truth, whether there's such a thing as punishment. It's, it's in some ways more a cause and effect, at least in the terms we've come to understand it. But, but maybe that's for another fellowship. Perhaps when this happens, Hashem is just removing himself from us. I don't know if it's happened to you. There we go. Thank you. Maybe Hashem is just removing himself from us in order to see who we've really become. When you strip it all away and we're alone and afraid, will we stay loyal to him and seek him with all of our hearts and all of our might? Or will we take refuge in whatever opiate we can find to dull and numb the pain? And God knows we see enough of that happening in the world all around us. And then this past Wednesday, things started to take a turn for the better. And although, like I said, I'm not in the clear, um, it's been gradual. And there are a number of life preservers thrown to me to cleave to within these tumultuous waters that were encircling me from friends and family. Mostly my beloved wife, Shana, who I've come to appreciate with a depth that I never have before. Uh, but this, this fellowship, oy, you're just so holy. And I'm so grateful for you. So many of you would randomly write me emails and messages and blessings and encourage me and pray for me. And you didn't even know what I was going through. And each of them touched my heart. Each of your words and your, pr your prayers and your blessings touched my heart and made me feel less alone in all of this. But in whatever it was Hashem was doing with me. And on Wednesday, I was lying in bed and I checked on my phone and I saw that I received an audio message from Sister Georgine. I don't know if you recognize her name. From the fellowship, she speaks, she's very involved. Anyways, she's a nun. And I first met her at Darmstadt, Germany. And now I believe she lives in Arizona, but I'm not sure. Anyways, I was lying there in the fetal position and I pressed play and this is what I heard. Spirit of healing, come now. We ask Hashem and pray so. Spirit of healing, come now. Healing Rabbi Ari today. Mishle says a merry heart is a key to our healing. We bless Hashem for His great love and praise His holy name. Spirit of healing, come now. We ask Hashem and pray so. Spirit of healing, come now. Healing Rabbi Ari today. It just, it pierced directly into my heart and I lay there in my bed and I just started crying my eyes were just filled with tears it was just so simple and so pure and so beautiful and I played it again and again and it really did bring healing to me 
I called Shayna into the room and I played it for her a number of times. I sent it to my to my all of my family, and they were just like, "Who is? What is going on with Ari that a nun is singing him this?" But none of them could help. They laughed, okay, but they laughed. But none of them could help but be deeply touched by it. And I listened to it so many times that it was stuck in my head, and I didn't want it to leave. Throughout all of Shabbat, it was stuck in my head. And let's just take a moment and reflect on that. Just a snapshot. A rabbi in Judea, lying in bed, crippled with sickness and inexplicable anxiety, experiencing healing from the simple, pure blessing song of a nun halfway around the world praying for him. I know King Solomon said that there's nothing new under the sun, but uh, come on, you know, show me when such a thing has ever happened before. And, and that's just an example of the glimpses of redemptive light that we're experiencing here, each in our own way in this fellowship. God is doing really something great here. And I know still that we're at the early stages, just at the beginning, but the walls are coming down and the divisions of the past are disappearing. And so much of the pain and the distrust of the past is just being healed by, by love and by blessing. And as I was lying there in bed, um, I was going back into a flurry and a friend of mine sent me a video from Rav Biederman. Now, he's a Jerusalem rabbi I've quoted to you from before, and he shared a teaching that really spoke to me. And uh, at least at the moment that I was at right now, and again, I could sum it up to you, and I could say Rav Biederman said, but I thought, why not allow you to hear it directly for yourself in the original Yiddish? I hope you all speak Yiddish. Er fliegt backen jeden Erev Shabbos, Asach alles, aus der Tafteil von Nier-Jerusalem. Asach alles, der Tafteil von Nier-Jerusalem, von Kubit Shabbos. Ich bin dort noch mal einer, sie gewinnt ein Geschehen, ein Zerbrochener, ich bin ein Sabbel, er fliegt schleppen. Schwierige Arbeit wegen der Pulpritis. Schwierige Arbeit der ganze Woche. Er klappt mir nicht hier, fragt ich auch mit der Sabbel, der Schlepper. Ich sage, der darf zwei Challes. Und dann habe ich gesagt, dass er gerne liegt. Alter, wusst, weil, äh, heute nicht gab, wegen der zwei Patches, die man sie geben, ist doch schon ein Stück alles, weil, die geben zwei Patches, nimmst du nicht gegeben. Alter, gesagt, der Kinder, Herr, ihr dürft verstehen, wusste ich, wenn der zwei Patches, war, wusste er sie gegeben. Der Mensch, ihn hat ein paar Bitte, der Arbeit, der Süß, schwer. Also, als Zabel, schlägt, darin. Verwusst. Arbeit, wegen der Britis, Foto. Er kommt daheim, die einzigste Nacht, sie kommt daheim, zwei Geschmacke, alles. Und das bringt, macht immer auch nicht Schabbes. Stell doch vor, wenn er kommt jetzt einem und der Chalas, weißt du, er hat nicht am Gegenüber zwei Pätsche, weißt du, warte, wir stieben Susan, wir sind gerade nicht durch die zwei Chalas. Kein Chulil ist an der Tisch, aber ich schraube, ich habe es dort, nein, ich schraube, bitte. Und für den verweitigten Traugen, wenn wir gelassen die zwei Pätsche, mach ich lieber besser, ich darf nicht zwei Chalas, er ist ein alter Marzis. Aber er darf es nicht bekommen. Ich habe schon ein alter Marzis. Anluchten, getroffen, ich habe seligen, vermachten Zimmer. 
Im Gerdrab Selig sagt er zu sich, Selig, Selig, verwusst auf der Kappen zwei Petsch, auf der Versteinung mit der Verwegung im eigenen Halles feiern. Verwusst auf der Kappen zwei Petsch, auf der Versteinung mit der Verwegung im eigenen Halles feiern. Oh ja, ich habe ja, ich habe ja, ich habe ja, ich jeden ja, ich so viel Klepfen nehmen. Sie verstehen, damit auf Arbeit drin, aber wegen dem eigenen Feiern. Wie viel Klepp, du Uhr, sie wird fitzes, du Bunsch, so schön. Hier mal zu, sie die. Hier mal zu, sie soll die. Wie viel Klepp, hat man gehabt, haben sie verstehen, damit auf Gegeben der eigenen Feiern. Aber sie sollen, aber sie sollen mit der Havas hinnom. Havas hinnom. Havas hinnom means baseless love. Right, as we know, it was baseless hatred that destroyed the temple. And so what this rabbi is saying, this rabbi that so many people would look at him and say, oh, he's an ultra-Orthodox, closed-minded, insular, closed off. And he's saying, we just need to baselessly love each other. Everybody, every Jew needs to love every Jew and every Jew needs to love all of mankind and all of mankind needs to love each other. <coughs> I, can, I feel like there had to be a reason there had to be a reason that Hashem was giving me so many of these slaps. And I can only imagine how many of these smaller, quiet little slaps I was ignoring. And I was forcing God's hand to be louder and louder and more dramatic until I would finally listen. Until my stubborn, obstinate ears would finally hear what he's been telling me. And I hope I'm hearing it now. I pray to God that I'm hearing it now and that I'm really opened, opened my heart for all of this. I'm so sorry about the, the camera. But uh, anyways, I don't think it's just me personally either. Because last night, after prayers in our synagogue, at the crown of our mountain, I was able to pull myself out and go to, to prayers. And, uh, and I was speaking to my very dear friend about what I've been going through. And I opened up to him because I've always considered him like the strongest, most solid guy I know, or one of them. And I told him what's happening. And he said, brother, that happens to me too all the time. And I was like, you, you, you cry, you break down and cry. He's like, yeah, I do. And I try not to fight it. I try to just experience it and let it wash over me and realize that it's part of something much greater. And I said, what do you mean by that? What do you mean it's part of something much greater? And he said, uh, he said, are you watching the news? Do you see, are you watching the news? Are you seeing the chaos that's going on out there in the world? There's a spirit of fear and confusion washing over mankind, and we're a part of it. Just because our bodies look separate and disconnected doesn't mean that we are disconnected. We're all one. You're simply feeling that chaotic energy of the world flowing through you. He's a spiritual guy, and he was speaking in those terms, and of course this is true. But I, I, I realized that I've been so caught up in my own pain, in my own fear, in my own experience, that I was just disconnected from the greater picture. And so as the dust began to settle a little bit, I decided to take a look around to see who I can help as so many people have helped me, just to see who I can pray for as so many people have prayed for me. And well, in our world, you do not need to look far. There was just a great tragedy that has struck America, a, a dramatic, devastating tragedy. You probably know what I'm talking about, not only for America, but for the Jewish people. And this is, of course, the predominantly Jewish apartment condominium in Miami, Florida, that uh, you guys shake your heads if you know what I'm talking about. So it, 
it, it seemed to spontaneously collapse last week. Can you imagine this? This isn't in some third world country. This happened in an expensive upper middle class neighborhood in Miami, right next to the Jewish community. Immediately in the Jewish world, the prayers began and the dread took hold and everybody's wondering, who do I know? And who do I know that knows who I know? Everybody called their friends from Miami. And of course, Israel immediately sent an expedition of IDF officers, search and rescue teams to help rescue any survivors that there may be. As we do for all natural disasters, by the way, all around the world, whether they're from friendly countries like America or adversaries like Iran or Syria. And during a CNN interview with the IDF search and rescue delegation, I saw something which caught my eye and impacted me profoundly. And uh, it was a five-minute interview, but I'm not going to share the whole thing with you. I'll just cut out the first minute here for you to see. This is a, truly a global rescue effort here with engineering and specialists from around the world joining local officials. With me now is Colonel Golan Vak. He's an Israeli Defense Force commander who is leading the Israeli rescue team here. Commander, thanks so much for being with us, and thank you for the work you're doing. You just came from the pile. You've been working overnight on the site. I can still see the dust on your boots, which our viewers can't see here. Uh, give me the latest in terms of what you're finding. At the last 12 hours, we found some more people. Uh, you, found, people. you found more bodies? We found people. Okay. Unfortunately, they are not alive. Uh, we found some more tunnels, and we scrolled uh, at night in, in, in those tunnels. And uh, there are, from one hand, new spaces that we find, and from the other, we found more people, but unfortunately not alive. So did you hear the did you hear the sensitivity in his voice the compassion the love for every person not just every Jew but every person could you hear that in his voice it was so moving and you may have caught what i caught twice he refused to say bodies it wasn't just semantics when this holy man uncovered one of the victims of this tragedy he didn't see a body he saw a human being created in the image of God whose soul has departed from within them. <clears throat> Every one of them is unique and holy. Every one of them is an entire world. And thank you. Every one of them is an entire world. And, and in a world that's more and more changing the meaning of words to separate us and to divide us, to hear such deliberate usage of language for a holy reason, it touched me, and it made me proud, yet again, to be such a, a part of such a sensitive and holy nation. And while Colonel Vach humbly diverted his focus from it throughout the interview, it's clear that he had not slept in days, and that he had no concern for himself. You know, we can ask ourselves why this is happening, and we should. Building collapses in America are not common at all. And for it to happen, Dafka, in, a, in the heart of a Jewish neighborhood, should give us pause and, and strengthen us to 
and strengthen us to consider this. Another rare building collapse happened yesterday in Buffalo, New York, as you can see right here. And so what is this all about? All of a sudden, two building collapses? Why is this happening? We can't definitively know why. I'm so sorry about this. I'm so sorry. I figured out another way. You don't need to keep shaking your arms if you don't want to. But I appreciate your understanding. I see, Ardell, you're saying it's okay. Don't worry about it. I appreciate that. We're going to try to figure it out for next time. But, um, but we should try to make sense of it. We can humbly seek understanding. One person, seeking, a friend of mine wrote, to what, why is this happening? And he gave some reason why it's happening. And instead of everybody saying, we don't know, we can't know the way God thinks, all of these people were, were making suggestions. One person seeking to make sense of it, he wrote this. We are crushing one another. We are trampling on our fellow Jews. We are not respecting each other as we should. Our father is sending us pain for through our own pain, we become sensitive to our brother's pain. We all need to increase our Ahavat Israel, our love for our fellow Jew, and our Yirat Shamaim, our fear of heaven. Yet I pray that the merciful one will, only, will see only our merits and send the Redeemer to help guide us back to be the Am Segula. And so that was really beautiful for me to, to, hear, him, to hear him say that, because that's really what, what it's about. It's about praying that Hashem just sees the good in us and that we can only do that by seeing the good in each other. And then another person wrote this. God sends calamities to the Jewish people to awaken us to do tshuva, right? To repent. Each individual knows what he needs to improve on and we cannot tell others what they need to repent for. We need to make an individual accounting of our own faults and work to fix them. Repentance is done in three steps as explained by the Rambam, number one, remorse and regret what was done wrong. Number two, resolve to never do it again. And number three, express this verbally and ask for forgiveness from Hashem. That is a Jewish way of coping and contending with pain and darkness in the world to try to make sense of how we can refine ourselves. So I don't really know why it happened, uh, the thought that I had, maybe God is telling us that the foundations are crumbling, particularly in, in America, that we must stop putting our faith in bricks and mortar or the works of our hands. I don't know. It, it isn't for us to know, at least not definitively, it's not for us to know, at least not beyond the shadow of a doubt. Yes, we should seek understanding and insight. This is true. But uh, we should seek to hear what God is telling us. But more important than that, we need to put our own interests and ourselves aside and think about God and his honor and about the health and the well-being of our fellow man. I would just, it was, this is the way at least I felt because I had spent this week just crippled, immersed in myself, just totally in myself. And I realized that was part of what I was contending with. So in essence, what do we need to do? We need to look within our own hearts at our own motivations and our own egos and ask, what, what can we do to truly serve God? What can we do to be of service? And this is exactly what I believe we can learn from the great Pinchas in this week's Torah portion, who throughout history stands out as the greatest example of what it means 
to be a zealot for Hashem. But to frame things in a better way than I ever could, let me introduce Tehila Gimpel, who will share a teaching that is so profound that I'm telling you now, you'll probably want to revisit this highlight and watch it at least twice. Tehila. Hey, guys. So there's this idea that I've been waiting for the right time to share with you, and I'm really excited that it's Parshat Pinchas, which is a perfect time to tap into this idea. It has footprints all over the Torah, but and even in the prophets. But in this week's Parsha, we really get to the pinnacle of it. In the beginning of this week's Parsha, we read about the reward for Pinchas, the grandson of Aram, that he gets for zealously having killed Zimri, the head of Shimon, when he publicly sinned in Shittim when the Midianite women came to seduce the Israelites to idolatry and licentiousness. Now this is a tricky story, right? Because he does this. He kills the prince of Shimon. And you can imagine the whole crowd being like, what was that? Oh my God. Like, like a hush comes over the crowd. Like that could have been murder. That could have been really bad. God didn't say to kill anyone. And Moshe didn't say to kill anyone. What was that? And then they're like, Maybe it was good, like they were sinning. You could just imagine the tension in the crowd. And then Hashem says, good job. And you're like, okay, phew, right? And now there's this kind of cryptic, interesting midrash in um, a book called the Sifri, which is one of the most ancient uh, interpretations on the Torah from the Tanaitic period. I'm going to tell it to you. It's a little complicated, and then we're going to unpack it, okay? So the midrash asks, why does the tribe of Levi get special blessings? The Midrash is asking because it says Shimon and Levi, it says they drank from the same cup in Shechem. Like they were both involved in something seemingly not so great in Shechem. And they were criticized by Jacob and even kind of cursed at Jacob's deathbed for this. So if they did the same thing wrong, why did Levi like pull ahead of the pack and get all these blessings and Shimon didn't, right? And... The Sefer gives this parable. It says, imagine two people took a loan from the king. One of them pays the money back to the king and even gives the king extra money, like an extra loan to the treasury of the king. And one of them doesn't pay the loan back and has the audacity, what we would call in Israel, the chutzpah, right? Is the chutzpah to come and ask the king for another loan. The Medrash says that's what Shimon and Levi were like. They both took out a loan in Shechem. Levi returned his loan at the golden calf and even gave more to the king at Shittim because of Pinchas killing Zimri. But Shimon didn't pay his loan back and then took out another loan through the act of Zimri with the Midianite woman. And therefore, Levi is blessed. That's what the Sifri teaches us. And this is kind of interesting and cryptic. The Midrash is drawing this like connection between the story of Shechem, the story of Jacob's blessings to Levi and Shimon, the story of the golden calf, the story of Pinchas and Zimri here, and tying it all together and saying, you should look at this like a loan. What is the Midrash trying to teach us? It says that is the way you can only understand the story through these different connections and they don't see, like, what, what is drawing all these things together? What does it mean? It's a lot. So it's a little bit of a mind-blowing concept. I'm going to try to convince you that the Torah here is teaching us a really deep idea. Like, the Midrash is showing us that all of these stories are connected to teach us something really meaningful about our lives and about 
repentance itself. The idea is that the future can change and define the past. I know that sounds weird to say the future can define the past, right? But I'm going to try to convince you. Let's go back to all the different elements and try to understand them. So the first story that the Midrash teaches us is relevant is the story of Shimon and Levi and Shechem. Shechem takes Dina and rapes her. Shimon and Levi go and slaughter all of the people of the city of Shechem when they're at their weakest because they've just been circumcised. Was that good or was that bad? Like when you read it, you're not really sure because Yaakov doesn't even really seem sure. There are these two statements about how the brothers felt about this whole thing regarding Dina. One of the verses says, and the men were grieved and they burned fiercely because he had committed a scandalous act in Israel to lie with the daughter of Jacob and such ought not to be done. You know, such ought not to be done. It sounds like they're having this like righteous indignation. They're saying this was wrong. We need to do something. We are enraged because an immoral act was committed. But later when Yaakov says to them, why'd you go kill everyone? That seems a little excessive, right? Why do you kill all of the people of Shechem, right? They say, shall he make our sister like a harlot? That doesn't sound quite as even-headed as the earlier verse, right? It doesn't sound quite as holy in the intentions. It sounds more like a family honor, tribal kind of thing. Like you messed with my sister, you know, I'm going to take some revenge. What was the real motivation for killing the people of Shechem? Was it like they were saying, well, we mustn't allow such things to be done. We have to set a proper moral standard. Or was it just vengeful, hot-headed anger without thinking about the long-term consequences or the fairness of killing all of these people? Yaakov, Jacob himself, doesn't seem to really be quite sure because the chapter ends there with them saying, you know, are they going to turn our sister into a harlot? And he doesn't respond. We don't really know what he thinks. Like, did that convince him that this was okay or not? We don't really know. But then at his deathbed, when he gives the blessings to all of his you know, 12 sons, what does Yaakov say? In Genesis 49, verse 7, he says, Cursed be their anger, cursed be their wrath, for it is mighty, and their anger because it is harsh. I will separate them throughout Jacob, and I will scatter them throughout Israel. So it seems that when Jacob is reflecting back, he's not really seeing this in such a positive light because he's saying, I'm going to, you guys aren't going to have a tribal, you know, both of you are not going to have a tribal inheritance. You're going to be scattered among Israel. But it's an interesting punishment because he doesn't like destroy them or say that, you know, you're going to suffer terribly. It's like they're so rageful. You can't be um, like a concentrated force. You're, you're too powerful. You need to be diluted, right? So it's unclear. Like, is this how, like, is this really a curse? Is it not a curse? It seems like a curse, but it's not so bad, right? Now, the next story that the Midrash is referencing is the story of the golden calf. What happens at the golden calf? People are sinning. They're worshiping the golden calf. And Moshe says, Mila Shem Eli, whoever is for the Lord, let him come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, the verse says. And then they go and they kill all the people who are worshiping the golden calf. Meaning, when push came to shove, Levi and no one else were really willing to go out and be zealous for Hashem. Guess who didn't show up? Shimon didn't show up when Hashem, when Moshe said, you know, whoever is for the Lord, come to me, right? They didn't come. They have this angry, zealous kind of nature, but they didn't come and help. 
And then there's this final event in this past week's Parsha, starring the symbolic leaders, princes of each tribe. It's like this ultimate final showdown. There's an opportunity to sin, and the prince of Shimon is publicly leading the sinning with a Midianite princess. And there's Pinchas, who's like the prince, the symbolic leader, as it were, of the tribe of Levi, and he comes out and kills them. So it's like he was not able to tolerate this immorality in the Jewish camp, right? So these are the stories. And then the Torah, so the Midrash is saying, like, look at all these stories. They're all connected. And they're not only connected, but the way to think about them is like a loan. Now, loans in the Torah are an interesting subject because the loan in the Torah is not just a financial institution. It's really not even a profitable institution because you're not allowed to give a loan with interest, right? It's done when someone gives a loan, according to the Torah, it's really done as a mitzvah. It's like a kindness. Now, it's not only, it's, it's not only a mitzvah to give a loan, it's actually also a mitzvah to return a loan. But on the other hand, if you don't return a loan, it's considered as if at the time when you took that loan, you actually did the sin of theft. Now, when you first think about that, that sounds fair enough, right? Like you took money, you didn't give it back, that's theft. But when I thought about this as a lawyer, it kind of struck me as funny because it goes against the very first thing that you learn on the first day in any law school, right? What do you learn on the first day of law school when you're learning your first class in criminal law? Is that for almost all crimes, you need to have what's called the mens rea. In, in Latin, like the, the, the criminal mind, right? The guilty mind, criminal intent. It's like if I'm sleeping and I roll over and I slap Jeremy in the face, I can't be held responsible for assault, right? Because, because like I didn't know that I was even doing that, right? So to be criminally responsible, you need to know that you're doing something wrong. You have to have some sort of awareness at the time of the crime that you're doing a crime. So now let's say you took a loan and you're supposed to pay it back in 10 years. 10 years go by and you forgot to pay it back. That'll be like a debt. Is that really theft? Like you didn't mean to steal 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you did something legitimate. But after 10 years, you were supposed to pay it back. So like maybe now you're doing something wrong by not paying it back. But how could you say that 10 years ago you were stealing? That's a little weird, right? But that's what the Jewish law says. It's like the Torah is framing. It's like the Torah is framing the event of the loan as a question mark. It's like this undefined event, right? What you do in the future can actually create the meaning of what happened in the past. So when you took a loan, you had this, it's like, we don't know exactly what's happening because that very same action could in the future, when you pay it back, turn out to be a mitzvah, or it could turn out to have been a transgression. It'll depend on what you do in the future. What you do in the future will retroactively reflect on the past and give it its meaning. This is a really deep parable. The, Torah, the Midrash is telling us that the stories, these different showdowns, these different stories, not, they're not really showdowns, but like different events that happened with Shimon and Levi, you need to think of them like a loan. What happened in Shechem is like a loan. It's like a question mark. Was that okay? Was it not okay? Sort of undefined. Maybe they were trying to protect their sister and set a proper moral standard of good, proper behavior in the land. Maybe they were just hotheads. Maybe this was just like gang, you know, gang violence, right? Vengeance for making their sister a harlot. When are we gonna find out? The answer is going to appear, it's going to crystallize in the future with the future actions of their children. Like what did they teach, what values did they give their children that will then reflect upon their past? 
So when the golden calf comes, Levi is willing to wield that rage that characterizes their tribe, that's like flowing in their blood, right? For a godly purpose, they've been raised to understand that anger needs to be, anger is like a tool that needs to be used for a proper godly purpose. They channel their rage into setting a proper standard against idolatry. This is not how a godly nation is going to behave. And there was nothing in it for them. There was no personal rage or personal honor at stake. It was purely for Hashem. And then in the next generation, right, 38 years later, or 40 years later, comes the Shittim. Shimon is leading the way in the harlotry. The same tribe of the same guy that says, will our sister be a harlot? That he claimed to be so concerned about moral standards doesn't seem to bother him when there's harlotry here in the desert with the Midianites. But look at the representative of Levi, Pinchas, once again, is willing to wield that Levite zealous nature in the sanctification of Hashem's name, upholding a proper moral standard in the nation. So now you can look back and redefine the action of Shechem. What were Levi and Shimon maybe had complicated intentions. They had maybe a little bit of hot-headedness and anger that Jacob identifies, but they also kind of had this zealousness for Hashem. What was the primary motivation? What should we look back at, right? We look back and the tribe of Levi, Levi through their future actions is retroactively able to show that their deepest intentions in Shechem were pure. Whereas the future actions of Shimon were able to show that their deepest intentions were not really so pure. They didn't really care so much about harlotry. They were maybe just being really angry and that's dangerous, right? And so that, it's like your future can distill the deeper meaning of the past. And it doesn't only redefine your own personal past actions and set them in their proper light, but it also redefines, it, excuse me, it doesn't only define their past actions, but it also can redefine the curses that came upon them for those actions. Because Jacob said, hey, you guys, you have a lot of anger. You need to be scattered. But it manifests in totally different ways. Both Shimon and Levi were actually scattered. Like Jacob's prophecy came true. Shimon was ultimately swallowed up and integrated into Judah. He lost any kind of separate identity. Like when you're walking around Israel, you're never going to meet anyone who says like, oh yeah, I'm from the tribe of Shimon. No one knows that they're from the tribe of Shimon because they were swallowed up in the tribe of Judah. Levi was also divided up, but they didn't lose their identity. They were divided up so that there'd be a little bit of Levi in each tribe, a city of Levi in each tribe, to be the teachers and the spiritual leaders for everyone. And they don't even need to worry about material sustenance. Like everyone gives them tithes so they can be fully dedicated to spiritual work. And up until today, like you'll meet people in, in Israel and be like, oh, hey, who are you? Oh, I'm from the tribe of Levi. People know that they're Levites because they didn't lose their identity by being scattered. So that curse Look how it expressed itself differently for Shimon and Levi. They didn't get lost like Shimon. On the contrary, the curse really became a blessing for them. They, be, they got to totally dedicate themselves to, Hashem, themselves to Hashem's work in the world. It took a completely different form. So I found this to be so unbelievably profound for me in my life. You know, there's this famous saying of the sages that when you do tshuva, when you repent, your sins become merits. Most people understand this. I always understood this. Like a cute saying, like it's poetic. Like if you repent, Hashem loves your tshuva so much. Hashem is so forgiving that he'll even see, you know, your past sins in a positive light. He'll kind of brush them under the rug and he'll say, oh, you know, you're not so bad. But when reading all these stories together, you can understand that that saying is so deep. You can actually turn your past actions around by using your shortcomings and reinterpreting them, retooling them 
and using them for the good. Because you know, it's like actions aren't simple. People aren't simple. When you look back at things that you know you've done wrong, a lot of times, like at least for me, I feel I didn't mean to do wrong, but looking back, I can see, you know, I wasn't actually having good intentions. I, I had sort of an evil, an evil side to what I was doing, right? I don't meet a lot of people who wake up in the morning and say, you know what I want to do today? I want to sin. But we still see a lot of people doing bad things because sometimes you don't realize you're doing bad things. Your intentions are all mixed up. Like you kind of have a good intention, but kind of a bad intention. It's so hard to distill what's really driving you. Like when you want to, you know, do something good, are you doing it so that other people will give you honor or because you really want to do it, right? When you're trying to be kind, is it so that people will compliment you or is it because you really want to be kind? Like, it, things are so confusing, right? Like when you when you get angry at someone, is it because you're really trying to teach them or just because you're a hothead and you've lost control of your of yourself, you know? Like how do you know things are so complicated? So the Torah is teaching us that like your actions are like loans. Hashem gives you a credit line. Hashem says, I'm going to withhold judgment and I'm going to see what you do in the future. Pinchas had this Levite hot-headedness in his blood. It could be zealousness for Hashem or it can be a little bit mixed up. It could be just a little bit impetuous. Pinchas looks at his past. How can I fix the past? I have this characteristic. How can I distill it for good? I can actually turn my past problematic actions into true merits. Not just as a poetic saying in the eyes of Hashem, like, oh, you know, every Hashem just sees me nicely. I'm actually paying back the loan. Hashem gave me a credit line saying, let's see how you're going to use your characteristics. Let's see what you have, you know, like what you're going to do in the future. And I'm willing to reinterpret the things that you did in the past, like a loan. It can either turn out to be a mitzvah or turn out to be bad based on your later behavior. And I don't think this is limited to our own lives. It can be multi-generational. A lot of us walk around with the, you know, I've heard, so, I've met so many people who told me that they walk around with the burden of what their forefathers did wrong, right? And we've spoken about this in the past, about fixing your family tree. Ruth fixed our family, her family tree. We talked about this in the context of Shavuot. She was a descendant of the daughters of Lot who did this thing with their father. They lay with their father, which was kind of for good intentions. They didn't think there was anyone else in the world. They wanted to create a lineage, but it was kind of bad. Like they should have known that this is, this is incest, right? She fixes the past because she has this urge also to bring, you know, to create a lineage, to have children, but she uses that desire in an appropriate way. It fixes her family tree. It distills the good and fixes her past. And to the point that she's able to bring David into the world. You know, there's this, uh, there's this famous passage in the tractate Shabbat in the Talmud that says that when Hashem gives you a soul, it's like a loan. That's kind of funny because you would imagine like the Hashem giving you a soul would be a gift, right? A loan sounds kind of like Hashem is like this businessman waiting to get his loan back. But when you put together all these stories, you can understand that our entire lives bear this loan kind of characteristic. Hashem has given us an opportunity, a credit line. It's not just a gift. Use your life as ever, however you please. It's a loan. Hashem is saying, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. Through your actions, you can define if this was, if your life was good or if your life was not good, God forbid, right? Your future positive actions can even turn your negative actions into something good. So for me, this allows me to not feel disheartened if I've made a mistake, you know, and this, it gives you strength. Like if your forefathers have made mistakes, because through our, our lives that we choose to live from now on, we can not only make the future better, but just like Pinchas, we can fix the past and we can even take the curses that may have come on us, like things that we see and maybe ways that Hashem was punishing us or trying to correct us, we can even reinterpret those curses into be the most amazing blessings that will come out of our past. We can take our most troublesome 
vices and characteristics and instead of trying to run away and hide from them, we look them in the eye and say, how am I going to use this to not only fix my future, but to prove to Hashem that I've learned from the past and I've my truest, deepest, most primary intentions in the past were in the deepest sense really good. So with that, I bless you guys to have a beautiful week filled with blessings and turning your future and your past into a beautiful work of art. Bye guys. So uh, that is what's called a Torah scholar philosopher. That's what Tehila is. You know, Rav Dessler says that the greatest service of God lies in the, in the, def, uh, the refinement of motivation. We really do have the power, as Tila said, to refine our characters and our motivations, not only within ourselves, but intergenerationally. It's hard to even imagine that we could uh, elevate the lowest parts of ourselves and our ancestors. It's huge the amount of potential our lives have. Uh, just think about that. Pinchas was descended from the tribe of Levi. I know we're going over time here. We're going to wind it down soon. Levi was a tribe that was castigated for violence and anger. And, but through the generations of the past, those qualities were so refined and became so selfless that he was able to stop the plague, which the Torah tells us was on its way to wiping out the entire nation. Right? Pinchas acts from such a deep, pure place that there was no self-interest left in him. Numbers 25.10. And God spoke to Moshe saying, Pinchas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the Kohen, has turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, and that he was jealous for my sake among them, that I did not consume the children of Israel in my jealousy. In, in the, you just lose it in the translation. But in Hebrew, the words are, Bekan'o et kinati, meaning that the same words were used for Pinchas's emotion as it was for God's emotion. Pinchas channeled God's emotion in such a direct way that there was no amount of his ego left behind. And that is what it means to be zealous for God, for your love for God to so consume you that there is no you left behind. The zealot is so consumed with God's honor. And it's not, by the way, zealous, zealousness is not necessarily connected with violence. The vast majority of time, it's not. We're just so consumed with God's honor that there's no emotional room left for concern about ourselves. Pinchas saw this evil taking place and he saw a plague wiping out his fellow Jews, 24,000 in just moments. And so he did what he had to do to defend God's honor and to stop the plague, to save the nation. And in my, my mind, Pinchas' act, it just reminds me of who? King David, right? King David, when he saw Goliath mocking the God of Israel and the armies of Israel, and he was so enraged by the desecration of God's name, that he simply didn't have any room left to consider his own fate. What did he say? You remember the words? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God of Israel? He was so filled with righteous indignation on behalf of the desecration of God's name that was taking place that he simply didn't have any calculation of anything personal in what would happen to him. And that, my friends, is what I believe it means to be zealous for God, to be a humble servant, which, as Rabbi Sachs says, it, it doesn't mean thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And as I'm hopefully on my way of being out of this very difficult and trying period, I believe and I pray that I'm exiting a different, more humble person than I've entered it. Allow me to bless all of us that we should merit to be humble and zealous servants of Hashem, and thereby of our fellow man, 
and that we should be able to overcome the constraints and the limitations of our own egos and serve as vehicles to bring light and peace and love to the world. And so before my greatest privilege, which is to bless all of you with the priestly blessing, please allow me to make one more suggestion, one more request that's on my heart. So many of you have been sending me blessings. Now I want to ask you to send me blessing requests. Send me an email with prayers that you're seeking for, for healing or health or salvation or whatever it is. Reach out to me. You know my email address is ari at thelandofisrael.com. My WhatsApp is 054-646-2082. Whatever you need to do to do the Israel thing before that, reach out to me on that. That's the best way, because then we can also hear each other's voices. Anyways, let me know in an email if it's a prayer that, uh, that I can bring up in the fellowship for us to pray together. I'd like for us to pray for each other together as one. For we're entering times right now where our greatest power is prayer. So let's come together and hold each other up in prayer. Only blessings will come from it. And so uh, on the subject of blessing, allow me to bless all of you with the final blessing for this fellowship. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yisem lecha shalom May Hashem bless and protect you. May He shine His light and His countenance upon you. And may He give you peace. Amen. Shalom, my friends. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the Land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.